This is a hard one. Please accept this as your warning. This is the true story of Charlie Lawson and the day he gave his family the best Christmas they had ever known, and then killed all but one before turning a gun on himself. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Now that we've gotten the initial shock out of the way, let's see if we can discover what would make this awful, awful event come to pass and perhaps even try to make some sense out of it. Full disclosure, I don't know the answer myself. All I can do is give you the puzzle pieces that I found and maybe together we can see more of the angles and shapes to create some kind of picture. We begin with the better understanding of tobacco farming in the 1920s. It was a hard, hard life. The Lawsons were tobacco farmers for generations back, so when Gus and Nancy's boys became adults with families of their own, most followed in the same vein. Charlie Lawson came from a good-sized family. He was one of six, and the majority of the siblings settled near one another. One brother, I think, moved away to Ohio, but everyone else stayed pretty close. Charlie married his bride, Fanny, on March 12, 1911. He was 24, and she was only 19. Almost exactly one year later, they started their family, welcoming little Marie. And less than a year after that, Arthur was born. And the littles just kept coming. On April 30, 1927, Charlie and his wife Fanny were able to close on the sale of their own home. They had been renters and tenant farmers for years, but this place on Brook Cove Road in Germantown, North Carolina, would be all theirs. It already had the farm buildings, the soil was dark and rich, and it had a cabin for the family. The cabin was actually the oldest building on the property and had been empty and unused for several years. It didn't even have a cook stove, so Charlie surprised his wife with a brand new modern cook stove. There was a lot of work that needed to be done to make it habitable. It was a fixer-upper to say the least, but they were determined to make it work. The payments would be $500 per year until the debt was fully paid. The price for the 114 acres plus the outbuildings was a whopping $3,200 a steep price for 1927. Charlie believed that they would have no problem reaching their annual payments with most of the children being old enough to help. If they could drag a garden hoe, they were big enough to work, and he needed all hands. Marie was the oldest at 15. Arthur, the oldest son, was 14. Carrie was 10. Maybelle was 5. James was 3, and baby Raymond was 2 months. They had already lost a son who would have been third in line, young William, just days after he turned six years old back in 1920. Charlie and his family worked day and night to get their home ready and to prep the outbuildings for a tobacco crop. This would be the largest piece of property Charlie had ever worked, but he knew the tobacco business inside and out. Tobacco prices were high at the time and showed no signs of leveling out. Charlie and Arthur planted tobacco and corn for their first year, and it paid off. Their first crops, taken into market in October and November of 1927, yielded well. Now, keep in mind, they didn't have tractors. Charlie and Arthur would use mules to do any of their heavy tilling. The younger children would use pegs to make holes for the seedlings down each row. As the tobacco grows, it requires daily attention. They had to keep a constant vigil for tobacco worms, mostly. It was the younger children's job to go along the rows and shake some lead arsenic over the plants to try and kill the worms. The ones they found, they plucked from the leaf and pinched their heads off. 
If this wasn't done regularly, the worms had such an appetite that they could destroy entire crops in a matter of days. The older children would go through and sucker each of the tobacco plants. This was when they would take off the new baby stalks that were trying to grow at the base of the plants. Now you might think it would be a good thing to have new little budding leaves grow, but apparently this steals the nutrients the tobacco needs to make huge luscious leaves the market was searching for. Also, topping helps with this process as well. This is when the flower buds are cut so, again, the plant can concentrate on the leaves. It's a long, hot job, going row by row, topping and suckering and pinching the heads off little bugs. In as early as July, as the leaves matured, they would pull the leaves off the main stalk by hand. They could measure up to four and a half feet long. They start with the bottom row, which were called lugs. Then, a couple weeks later, the next row would be removed, and then the next and the next. They would keep working up the plant, usually about five times until the final stalk is cut. The leaves would be tossed onto a wagon, and usually one of the children would lead the mule to the tobacco barn. This was a dry, cool barn that Charlie dug a basement below the dirt floor to help ensure proper moisture control. A proper drying of the leaves is of the greatest importance. The basement helped keep the moisture from the soil, which would seep into the plants. He also dug a drainage ditch to allow water to drain away from the leaves. On the days that the leaves were pulled, Fanny and Marie would help out in the tobacco barn, sometimes called a curing barn. Here they tied stacks of leaves to poles. The poles would then be hung in layers upon layers, balancing on wooden planks to allow as many poles to fill all the way up to the roof. They would work early in the mornings, go back to the house and make sure lunch was ready, and then either head back out with the others or prep for dinner. In between the time of the next batch of leaves were to be pulled, Charlie and Arthur would have a fire going inside the barn. This fire had to be watched day and night. It couldn't go out, it couldn't get too hot, and it couldn't get too cool. It took seven days for the leaves to yellow and dry. After the seven days, they added just a touch of natural moisture back into the leaves to make them pliable by opening up the barn doors for a time. The last step before taking your tobacco to market was to bundle it and press the leaves flat. When it was taken to market, and this was around October or November, it was apparently a really long process to inspect it and weigh it, all the things before payday came. As 1927 came to a close, the Charlie Lawson family produced their first crop to market, and it was good. It was profitable, and they felt good about dreaming about a brighter future. And now you might be thinking that they could rest for a moment, through the winter. But no, there's still more work to do. During the cold days of winter is when the crops and land have to be prepped for next season. They would burn off the topsoil, killing any bugs and weeds and undergrowth. This burning process also helps to sterilize the ground, and the ash then acts as fertilizer for the baby tobacco plants. Next, despite the ground being hard and cold, they proceeded to plant the little seedlings in rows of tilled land. Sometimes they would give them a head start by planting the seeds under protection of a barn and then put the stronger baby plants into the ground later in the season and others just put the seeds directly into the ice-cold mounds. Once the furrows have all been planted, they would cover the seeds to protect them from the elements using branches, brushes, and sometimes hay as cover. And so the cycle must continue. As I mentioned before, at least three of the Lawson brothers lived nearby. Charlie was closest, both in relationship and proximity, to Marion. Marion and his wife, Jetty, had six children, and in 1928, she was pregnant with number seven. These two families lived close enough to one another they could help each other with their crops. The cousins played and worked together, and the wives were the best of friends. Dinners together on Sundays was a must and the thing that everyone looked forward to. And while 1927 was a good and prosperous year, 
1928 would come along and demand payment. Now, I believe I've already mentioned that life on a tobacco farm was hard. I can't imagine doing that kind of daily labor being young and healthy, much less pregnant. Jetty Lawson was 34 years old and on her seventh pregnancy, and it was taking a toll on her body. This little one decided that she wanted to come out feet first, but there was something else. Jetty took to her bed weeks before the baby was born, and she never recovered. The baby, a girl she named Hallie Marie, was born premature, and it is believed that Jetty died of blood poisoning soon after the delivery. The duties of the household fell to Stella, their oldest girl, who was barely a teenager, and Marion sought to find solace with his brothers. Charlie, George, and Elijah stood by and listened to the final days of Jetty's life and could hear the grief in their brother's retelling of it. He would tell them that her children were all able to be there surrounding her bed, even though she could no longer see them. He didn't even know if she realized they were there. He told them that in her last moments she attempted to bring him comfort, saying that she would go to their heavenly home and wait for him there. When Marion tried to encourage her, he told her to not be afraid, and her last words were, quote, I'm not afraid to die, but I hate leaving you and all my babies, end quote. She was buried in May of 1928. And then tragedy on top of tragedy, baby Haley would die only a few months later. Charlie Lawson loved his family, and he loved his wife. Prior to the tragedy, no one would ever doubt how he felt about his family. Charlie Lawson, however, did not believe in celebrating Christmas. No one really knows why, but it is assumed that, because he had so many children, it would be too great of an expense to get gifts for everyone. Or maybe they all just worked so hard they worked right on through it as if it were another day. But others noticed. Christmas of 1928 would bring secret gifts from neighbors who wanted to bless the children with sweet treats. It would also be the same Christmas the Lawsons find out that another baby was on the way for them, baby number seven. 1929 came in much the same way as they nursed the tobacco seedlings and prepped the cold ground for their third crop at home on Brooks Cove. By May, the plants were growing tall and strong, and it looked to be another good year. Arthur was now 16 and stood taller and more broad than his father. He was taking on more responsibility with the crop, while his sister Marie, who was now 17, took on more duties inside, as this latest pregnancy was weighing heavily on Fanny. Little James was almost four, Raymond was barely two and still clung to his mother, and the new baby was ready to make her appearance any day. Fanny Lawson was a hard-working woman who loved her children and her husband. She would be remembered as a, quote, beautiful and good-natured woman, end quote. Fanny, who was now 37, tried to fight against the fatigue, but Charlie would stop his chores in the field to regularly come in and check on his wife. The neighbor ladies would stop by and try and help and would witness Charlie's care of her, and on the heels of the family losing Jetty, Perhaps everyone was a bit more cautious as circumstances seemed ominously similar. The summer of 1929 was unusually dry. Though the crops were flourishing, it made the days sometimes unbearable. It was around this time Charlie began seeking help for headaches. He would tell the doctors that he had been suffering from debilitating headaches for months and no one could tell him what to do about them. In the spring of the prior year, he did accidentally clock himself in the forehead with the backside of an axe head, and everyone assumed that it was from that. But this was before MRIs, so it was anyone's guess. He would confess to his brother Marion that he was feeling extra pressure. He had headaches, stress was presenting itself in the skin rash across his chest, and he told his brother, quote, It just seems like there's trouble at every turn, end quote. When Marion pressed for more information, he would recall that Charlie paused, and it seemed like he would share, but then instead walked away. Marion watched him walk, head hung low, and sit near the railroad tracks and stare off into the empty field. There's that moment in time when looking back, replaying events in the mind where you think, this, 
This was my moment to have made a change. If I only did this, or if I only said that, this would be that moment for Marion. He left his brother sitting by the railroad tracks to sort his troubles out on his own, vowing that, at a later date, he would press his brother further. Quote, Dad said Uncle Charles acted very strange that day, looking back. He should have realized it was a sign that something was wrong. He said he wished he had taken more time with him and tried to talk with him that day. End quote. That was from Stella Lawson Bowles, the oldest daughter of Marion and Jetty. On August 26th, 1929, the Lawsons welcomed Mary Lou into the family. Both mama and baby were born healthy. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, that's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. The headaches increased, as did the workload. Seven mouths to feed, brain-rattling pain, the winter coming on fast. 43-year-old Charlie Lawson was feeling the pressure barreling down on him. Fanny would talk to her sister-in-law about Charlie sitting on the edge of their bed and breaking down in tears. One night, she would tell them, he looked at her with tears in his eyes, saying that there was something he needed to confess to her, but he didn't know how to say it. He never did speak the words, but it haunted both Fanny and her sister-in-law, Nina, for weeks. Word began to spread among the family and neighbors that Charlie was struggling, so the tight-knit folks did what they do and offered to help. Hill Bolden, who was Charlie's nephew, told of an evening that he offered to help with the curing fires, as they had to be watched all through the night. Quote, Hill offered to stay awake all night to keep watch so Charlie could get some sleep. Instead of sleeping, Charlie stayed awake all night crying and praying. He couldn't sleep at all, end quote. From a booklet titled The Lawson Tragedy, written by attorney Leroy B. Wall in 1930, he would write, quote, Often in the late hours of the night, his wife would wake up and find him out in the yard or some nearby place down on his knees praying as in terrible distress. At other times, he would break down and cry like a child, end quote. Fanny would also tell her sister that one of those nights she found Charlie in the middle of their harvested cornfield on his knees praying and crying with a shotgun beside him. She begged him to come inside with her and he told her that he'd be along in a minute. She believes that had she not insisted he come inside at that moment, he may have taken his own life. She would also tell that he became obsessive about checking, cleaning, and loading, then reloading his guns. Charlie's behavior was becoming more and more erratic. This was when Arthur would start sleeping with his clothes on, not knowing if he was going to have to get up at a moment's notice to help handle his father. He was at times growing violent, and Arthur was the only one who could intervene. Stella Lawson Bowles would later recall, quote, My Aunt Nina told me that Fanny told her and Aunt Ida that Charlie had a special surprise planned for them that Christmas, but Fanny didn't know what it was. It was about ten days before Christmas that Charlie revealed his surprise. On this day, the whole family was going to the big city of Winston-Salem. Until this moment, only Charlie and Arthur had been and had witnessed the tall buildings and streets lined with fancy cars and shops. It would be no small feat to get the family of ten into town, but this was the plan Charlie had thought of for days, maybe even weeks. Arthur and he altered the 1926 Model T car they had into a versatile truck. Behind the front row seats, they had cut off the back and created a flatbed to carry the tobacco. 
They also created planks that would line the sides of the back so the children could sit on either side. And then they created a sort of camper top, for lack of better word, that Fanny had made curtains for. They packed a sack lunch, and soon after the breakfast chores were completed, they all piled in. Fanny sat in the passenger side, holding baby Mary Lou. Charlie, of course, took the driver's seat, holding young Raymond, while four-year-old James sat between his parents. Arthur took care of the others in the back, making sure everyone was settled in and bundled under heavy quilts. No heat, you know. After about an hour's travel time, Charlie herded his family into the department store and instructed his wife to help each of the children choose a new outfit for Christmas. Fanny would later tell her sister-in-law that she was at first concerned about the amount of money they were spending on clothes, but saw that Charlie had a roll of cash in which he paid for everything. She assumed it was perhaps a way of redeeming himself for his angry and sporadic behavior. Charlie would instruct his family to wear the new clothes and put their regular clothes into the store bags. He had another surprise. They were going to get a family portrait. And this made Fanny's heart sore. All the children piled into the frame. Charlie between his wife and Marie, Arthur standing at the opposite end of his mother holding little Mary Lou. The younger children sat on a wicker bench. James, Maybelle, Raymond, and Carrie. Carrie was the only one who smiled. The girls all wore stylish bobs with bangs, and Mary had hers styled in finger waves. All the boys had their hair neatly trimmed and combed. James rests his hand on his sister's leg, while Maybelle has her arms intertwined around Raymond, probably trying to keep the toddler on the bench as he looks to be drowning in his new suit and could bolt at any minute. Carrie looks to be a confident and content young lady just at the edge of entering her teenage years. Charlie did not look into the camera, but his gaze was in another direction. But his expression looks happy. This photo and others is posted at theragtagnetwork.com forward slash podcast if you'd like to see it. The family would have a grand time on their big city adventure. They would change back into their everyday clothes before the long drive back home. And as it was but a blip, by the time they got back, life morphed back into their normal routine. But all was not normal. With Charlie's gift presented, the demons inside him would not be quieted. One evening, as his brothers and neighbors gathered around a barrel fire trying to warm themselves at the wake of a friend's wife who recently passed, Charlie would say while staring into the flames, quote, I wouldn't mind dying, but I would want to take my family with me, end quote. The winter of 1929 would go down in history as one of the worst recorded in U.S. history. The snowflakes were huge, the temperatures were fierce, and the small town of Germantown was feeling the effects. Two days before Christmas, a fresh snow fell. The Winston-Salem Journal would print, quote, Old Mother Nature was crowned with a blanket of snow Saturday and Sunday night, and it lay about four inches deep in this section. Monday found little of it leaving its position on earth, though the sun shone brightly for a better part of the day. End quote. On Christmas morning, a fresh snow fell, filling in the footprints and worn paths, making everything look still and serene. Christmas or not, this holiday began as every other day with chores needing to be done. Fanny, being the first one up, started the fire in her cook stove. She ground fresh coffee beans, put water on to boil, and just all around prepping for breakfast. Charlie would be right behind her, fetching wood from the outside to warm up their home for the children. If one were to peek through the window on that holiday morning, there would be no signs that it was Christmas Day anywhere. The Winston-Salem Journal would report on December 27th, quote, There were no signs about the house yesterday of Santa's visit. No toys were to be seen, and there were no cedars or other evergreens in the house, although on the hills and vales all about the place these grew in profusion, end quote. Christmas Day in Germantown, North Carolina was a time for rabbit hunting. It was nothing to hear gunfire going off throughout the day as the menfolk got tired of staying indoors visiting, they would go out to hunt for the evening meal. 
Arthur and his two cousins got an early start with this activity. While the boys were out, they stopped at various other family homes, which was commonplace to offer Christmas greetings and perhaps be invited to sample a sweet treat or two. At some point, the boys went back to Arthur's home to grab some more ammunition, and there, Charlie would join them in the field shooting some tin cans. Fanny was busy getting a head start on dinner preparations. Marie had just gotten busy making her raisin fruit cake. The two younger girls were gathering their things as they were to spend the night with their cousins over at their uncle Elijah's home. The morning was busy with visitors and greetings. When the boys had enough of shooting cans, it was about the time the house was quieting down. Marie iced her cake and artistically placed each raisin just so. Arthur, his cousin Sanders, and Charlie all warmed themselves by the fire. The older boys asked for permission to go into town and purchase more ammunition. Sanders remembers that his Uncle Charlie would agree and added, quote, Bring me back a few, too, end quote. After the cousins left, the Lawsons had another visitor. Charlie barely acknowledged their guest, and he would say that Charlie would sigh deeply and put on his coat, felt hat, and grab his shotgun from over the fireplace. According to their guest, a young man named Abe Heath, he would tell his wife Fanny, quote, I've got something to check on out in the barn, end quote. Fanny nodded to her husband while helping the girls button their overcoats getting ready to walk to their Uncle Elijah's and Aunt Jenny's house. Charlie would go to the tobacco barn where he could see the doors of his home. He watched as Abe Heath left out their front door. Charlie held a double-barreled 12-gauge shotgun and leaning against the wall of the tobacco barn was a repeating rifle and a 12-gauge single barrel. He waited. As a mother of grown daughters and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings. I always let my people know where and when I'm going places. But to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety. And can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Fanny opened the door and checked the girls' coats one last time before sending them on their way. She stood on the porch and watched them walk toward her brother-in-law's home before the cold forced her back inside. Charlie watched as they followed their worn path coming just past the barn. As the sisters approached, Charlie came out of hiding and pointed his rifle at the older of the two, Carrie. He fired, even though his child raised her hands to implore him otherwise. The shot would go through her hand, straight to her chest. Maybelle would turn away from her father attempting to run. For some reason, Charlie switched weapons and fired the single barrel. The buckshot at close range shredded little Maybell's back and lungs, but they weren't dead. Charlie hadn't anticipated that. He found a two-by-four leaning against the barn. He used that to smash the back of their heads until they no longer moved. Hill Hampton would later say, Up around the tobacco barn, we found a short piece of two-by-four wood that was bloodied on one end. Both Carrie and Maybell had been battered as well as shot. End quote. Charlie took the bodies into the tobacco barn and laid them side by side, their heads resting on stones he pulled from the curing fire pit. He crossed their arms over their chest and closed their eyes. He looked over his work, and knowing the time was now of the essence, he stepped from the barn, closing the doors and locking them behind him. Neighbor Edith Watts Merritt recalled, quote, I was only five years old, but I heard the shots. He was killing his family. My family thought he was out rabbit hunting, end quote. 
Abe, hearing the gunfire close by, turned back around toward the Lawson house. In the meantime, Fanny, unaware that two of her precious children had been taken from her, went out to the front porch to grab more cut firewood for the stove. With her arms full, she saw Charlie coming around the corner, covered in blood, and raising his shotgun in her direction. Just as she attempted to turn and run, Charlie fired. The firewood flew in all directions as the impact of the shot not only destroyed her chest but blasted her back into the front door. She landed just inside, barely breathing. Charlie quickly ran up the stairs, picked up Fanny's arms, and drug her body further into the home. With his shotgun in his right hand, he lifted Fanny's legs just enough to close the front door. Marie emerged from the side room and screamed at the sight of her mother bleeding on the floor. Abe had walked up just in time to see Mrs. Lawson fall to the ground and Mr. Lawson drag her inside. He had seen enough. He turned and ran as fast as he could to his home. He could hear Marie screaming for her mother as he ran. The two youngest boys, who were playing outside with the neighbor child, Hassel Miller, came in through the kitchen door at the sound of alarm and saw the pool of blood growing around the still body. Marie screamed and ran to her mother, but when Charlie cocked his gun and pointed it at her, she turned to run toward the fireplace. He fired one shot at close range. The force threw her against the mantle, snapping her neck, breaking her wrist and some of her teeth. Her lifeless body slumped to the floor as blood poured from the gaping wound. It was only then that Charlie noticed his audience. He stepped over the body and made his way to Hassel Miller, who was so frightened he couldn't move. He would remember the wild look in Charlie's eyes and the scene of watching Marie being shot right in front of him, and it would haunt him forever. He wouldn't remember if Charlie had spoken any words or not, only that he knew that if he didn't run right then, he may not get another chance. Hassel Miller would run straight home, past his parents, and to his room, not saying a word to anyone. In fact, he didn't speak a word of what he saw for decades. James and his brother Raymond would both scatter and hide. As the extra child had left his home, Charlie looked back to Marie, and seeing that she was still breathing, he took the butt of his gun and struck her in the head, ending her suffering. Marie's body lay in the middle of the floor in front of the fireplace. Charlie would stretch it out so it didn't look mangled. Charlie then sought out his sons. He found Raymond under the cook stove. He reached under it, grabbing the youngest boy and dragging him out just enough to where he could crush the child's head by bashing it repeatedly on the stone floor. James was discovered under the bed he shared with his brother. Once discovered, he tried to run, as Charlie would strike his son again and again until he stopped running. The blood spatter and the cinched sleeve tell us he fought until he couldn't any more. Only one left, and her cries filled the tiny cabin of death. A single blow with the butt of his shotgun to the soft skull of baby Mary Lou would bring the house to an eerie silence. He was almost finished. He would position his wife and children as if they were sleeping, just like he did with his daughters left out in the barn. Their arms were crossed over their chests, their bleeding heads gently placed on pillows that quickly soaked up the blood pouring from their wounds. Bloody handprints along the wall of the stairwell show him climbing the stairs to retrieve Marie's pillow. He picked up the tiny limp frame of James' body and placed it prone beside his sister's in front of the fireplace. For Raymond, he left his body where it lay, still half under the cook stove, but as with the others, placed his own pillow under his head. There was so much blood in the main room of their cabin that the marks show Charlie slipped and fell, causing the back of his coat to be soaked in the blood from his oldest daughter. At one point, the blood tells us that Charlie took a moment or two to sit at the edge of the boy's trundle bed. He left the rifle that he had damaged while trying to pry Raymond out from under the cook stove. Then, covered in the blood from his family, he would leave his home for the last time. What Charlie didn't know was that while he was upstairs retrieving Marie's pillow, his brother Elijah and two sons had stopped by the house to offer Christmas greetings. The three were out hunting rabbits and would have no way of knowing if the girls had reached his home or not. As they attempted to open the front door, it was stopped by something only a few inches in. As Claude, one of the sons, pushed harder on the door, the horror on the other side revealed itself. By the light of the low crackling fire, 
they could see the blood covering the floor and the bodies placed there. But just before they could enter, they heard scuffling on the second floor. They had no more ammunition in their guns and thought it best to run, believing the murderer was still there. And they would be right, but they had no idea it would be their own family member. They ended up passing by several neighbors' homes before they reached their own, but couldn't make themselves stop. Once they got home, Elijah reloaded his gun with new ammunition, tucked a box in his pocket, and instructed his family to stay put and lock the doors, trusting that his sons would look after the women. Elijah then left his home and made his way back to his brother's house. A neighbor, Steve Hampton, caught wind that someone was hurt at the Charlie Lawson farm. Not knowing what to expect, he grabbed his shotgun and headed that way. He would be the first person on the scene. Steve Hampton was Charlie's best friend's father. He followed the worn path to his son's friend's house and it led him past the tobacco barn. There he saw two pools of blood along with dragging marks that led into the barn. Just as he was about to open the doors, the deputy sheriff, Robert Walker, and the others had only just arrived. He called their attention to his discovery. They opened the barn doors, and the heart-wrenching sight of the two little girls laying side by side was only the beginning of their night of horrors. It wasn't long before word spread about the Lawson tragedy, and quickly the Lawson property was covered with cars, family, neighbors, and the curious. As bits and pieces of the news of what had happened began to circulate among the crowd, they began forming their own conclusions. Some believed Charlie was incapable of such an act. Others had doubts. Some believed that there was a murderer on the loose and had taken Charlie hostage. Others added that Charlie's dead body would be found at the hands of an unknown murderer at any moment. Reporters were already there trying to find their angle to the story, and one so brazenly offered the brothers a large sum of money if they would let them get one photo of the bodies. By the time someone had gone to town and found Arthur, he had to run to his home from the bottom of the hill because there were so many people blocking his driveway. He was told along the way that his family was all dead. They had been murdered. When he finally made it to his front door, no one noticed him until he tried to push it open, and again, it wouldn't budge. He burst into tears and fell to his knees. He reached through the small opening the door would allow to touch his mother's feet. He cried helplessly until his uncles pulled him away. They took him over to a bonfire that had been started in the yard, wrapped him in quilts as his body shook from the cold and grief. Elijah had his nephew sit in his mother's rocking chair that he brought from inside and posted his cousins around him so he wouldn't be bothered. The Lawson brothers used the back kitchen door to gain entrance to witness the horrific scene. They didn't venture in or even up to the second floor, still not 100% sure the killer wasn't still up there. They took their posts at both doors and held the privacy for the family even though more and more people showed up and wanted to peek in the windows. There was still no sign of Charlie Lawson. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! The voices were faint, but he could hear them. The car motors echoed off the snow and then were absorbed by the pine trees. Here, Charlie paced. His two dogs watched his every move but were content to be still while their master circled the trees wearing away a new path. After he left his home, he staggered down behind the barn and tried to use the snow to wipe away the blood on his hands and sleeves. Not helping very much, he continued to the stream. 
the blood would show that he knelt down to dip his hand into the icy water and try and wash away what he had done. He would then walk to a secluded thatch of young pine trees still on his property. This is where he paced. He walked in circles, around the trees. He walked in jagged patterns. Used matches lay scattered on the ground as every few moments Charlie would light one to try and keep his hands and face warm. The temperatures were brutal. No one knows what was running through his mind as he nervously paced. His shotgun leaned against a tree, loaded and ready, with a forked stick just next to it. The sun was sinking lower in the sky, and the temperatures were dropping even more. He knew he was running out of time, and they would find him soon. But he chose to walk, and walk, and walk in circles. Charlie's dogs perked at the sounds of voices getting louder near the house and they took off running toward their house, leaving Charlie all alone in his secluded thicket. At the Lawson house, the people heard the dogs bellowing and a hush fell over the crowd. Two dogs appeared at the edge of the field and were immediately recognized as Charlie's dogs. And just as the dogs had nearly approached, the people heard the crack of a rifle go off in the distance. A group of men armed with shotguns headed out toward the sound. They eventually stumbled upon a single set of tracks that led to a small clearing of pine tree saplings, and there, laying on the cold, hard ground, was Charlie Lawson. The self-inflicted gunshot wound to his chest was still so fresh that the inner warmth of his exposed insides conflicted with the low temperatures creating a steam. He was lying on his back, shotgun fallen to his side. His dogs had come back to him and were found laying on either side. Four men lifted Charlie's body and began the long walk back to the cabin. The snow was deep and the men were exhausted. By the time they got back to the main road, they were swarmed by onlookers wanting to catch a glimpse of the man capable of doing these horrible things. They pushed and shoved trying to get close and by the time the men actually reached the cabin, Charlie's back was barely above the ground. His head bobbed with every step, eyes and mouth open, gaping at the crowds. Charlie was laid inside on the floor with his family. By the time the hearses arrived, there was barely any light in the sky, and even that eked away quickly. The hearses were unable to get close to the house due to so many other cars and the snow and the ice. The bodies would have to be brought down the hill to them. It was a painful, emotional task at hand. By the light of torches and flashlights, the bodies were wrapped in sheets to protect their dignity from those who still refused to leave the premises, and one by one, a makeshift sled pulled by a mule would take each family member to one of six hearses that had come from several surrounding towns. The next day, there was much work to be done. Nine men, including those who worked for the cemetery, began digging one massive grave for the family. The ground was rock hard, and the temperatures were still just as brutal even as the sun came back out. They decided to include the grave of young William, who died in 1920, with the family. His individual marker was removed, and his name was added to the massive gravestone for the Lawson family. On December 27th, a mass funeral was given at the small cemetery of Browder, just outside of Germantown. Stella Lawson Bowles would recall, quote, It seemed like I couldn't do anything but cry. We all gathered that morning before the funeral in the front room of the house. It was so sad. It just didn't seem real that they were all gone. End quote. Arthur Lawson, the lone surviving son from Charlie and Fanny, was the last in the procession for the funeral. Masses of people swarmed the area to catch a glimpse or be a witness to the sad event. Arthur leaned heavily on his Uncle Marion and tried to stay strong until they came to the open area where all seven caskets were lined up side by side at the edge of the roped-off gravesite. Grief overtook the young man, and his strength gave away as he crumbled to the ground in tears. His uncle came to his level and held his nephew close to him and joined him in deep guttural wailing. A quick service was offered, and the caskets were opened to allow the family their last goodbyes. Once the family members filed through and left the area, the rest of those who came to the funeral were allowed to walk past to say their goodbyes. With two lines going in opposite directions, one at the foot and the other at the head, 
It continued for three hours before the last mourner was through. At the home on Brooks Cove, the curious wandered. They let themselves into the home and went through all the rooms. They made their way to the barn to witness the remains of the murder scene, and the path to the pine thicket where Charlie took his own life was now wide and muddy due to the number of people curious to see the aftermath. Charlie's very best friend, Hill Hampton, Sherman Voss, and a few others took it upon themselves to clean up the crime scene as best they could. They asked the people to please respect the privacy of the family and leave the home, but most didn't listen. In fact, they began taking souvenirs from the scene. People were chinking out pieces of the bloody mortar between the logs and tucking it into their pockets. Others would take slivers of wood with bloodstains on it. One person is said to have scooped up some of Fanny's coagulated blood in a mason jar. Even after the funerals, hundreds upon hundreds of people would come to the house. They all wanted to see the place where the murder-suicide happened. It was decided by Marion to build a fence around the property and start charging people for going through. He would charge 25 cents per person, and the people were happy to pay. Even though the depression brought on by the stock market crash didn't affect the small town much, there would be people coming from as many states away to walk through the house and barn. The bloodstains were still very clear. The blood-soaked pillows lay where Charlie placed them. Even Marie's raisin cake sat on the table where she had left it to cool. The room was frozen in time. When people began to criticize him for turning the family tragedy into a sideshow, he explained that he had to come up with some way to make the next payment for his nephew, and that was that. When it came spring, the crowds had dwindled slightly and Marion decided to open only on Sundays since he had not only his own farm to run, but now the care of his nephew's farm and livestock. Seventeen-year-old Marie Lawson's raisin cake is one thing that visitors remember most. The family had to purchase a glass cake cover in order to protect it as people would steal the raisins from it for a souvenir. Uncle Marion literally grew the tourist business by adding raisin cake and snow ice cream for sale. And then he approved a pamphlet telling of the Lawson murder story, along with a packet of photos available for purchase. Arthur Lawson never had to worry about money again. The house and property remained a tourist attraction for several years following the tragedy. Eventually, it became the thing to etch your name and address into the wood. Before closing it down, every square inch of the space was used in the interior of the barn. The house did go on to be the home of Elijah and his families for several years. Try as they might, they could never erase the bloodstains on the floor. He would recall scrubbing it with every cleaning solution he could think of, and they even tried painting over it but when the moisture filled the air, the stains would look as if they were brand new once again. The property was eventually sold, and the cabin was taken down. Some of the boards were used as a bridge at the edge of the property to cross the spring. It is now referred to as the Lawson Memorial Bridge. Arthur Lawson eventually married and had four children, but his method of coping was alcohol, and even though he loved his family, adored his children, he couldn't release his grip on the drink. On May 5, 1945, late in the evening, Arthur, who was now called Buck, was driving his friend Eugene home. It was well after 10.30, and he had been drinking. They came upon a sign signifying a road closure ahead, but Arthur was unable to stop or swerve in time. His truck went through the sign, and both passengers were thrown from the vehicle. Eugene was able to survive, but somehow Arthur ended up under the truck's motor. When several men lifted the truck from his chest, he was able to draw one final breath, and it was to be his last. His wife and their children, unable to live under the Lawson stigma, packed up and moved to California. But why? Why, why, why? This story has plagued me for months because I just can't figure out the why. I know this episode is running long, but if you're interested in saving a few nights sleep, these are the theories floating around that I could find. Hang on for just one more sec, and I'll share them with you. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, 
But do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com merch now to check things out. His still warm body was found with $60 in his pocket along with a short pencil and two handwritten notes. It was as if he decided to write something and then changed his mind. On the back of a receipt, the words were written, quote, no one to blame. And on another scrap of receipt, the words, troubles can cause. He never finished his thoughts. Marie's school friend, Ella Mae Johnson, would tell later that Marie confided in her that her father had gotten her pregnant. Ella Mae herself had suffered from the abuse of her father forcing himself on her and believed that that made Marie more confident in confiding with her. However, her best friend never mentioned knowing anything about trouble Marie had with her father. Another school friend, Ruby Wagner Savage, would say, quote, I have to say that Marie acted perfectly normal to me that day, and we all spoke of looking forward to the coming holidays, end quote. At the time of her death and following her autopsy, there was no mention of a baby, even though, according to the stories, she would have been about three or four months along. And while we're speaking of autopsies, the coroner and a visiting relative who happened to be a medical intern at John Hopkins decided to remove Charlie's brain from his skull to see if they could figure out why he flipped. They put the brain in formaldehyde to examine later, but at first glance they couldn't see where he got knocked in the head would have caused any long-term effects. But they did mention that a portion of the center of his brain seemed underdeveloped. Charlie Lawson's brain supposedly went to John Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland for research, and no one has seen it since. Others believe that it may have been money issues, but there's nothing to support that theory either. His crops were doing well, and he was able to make his annual payment to the bank to keep his home and land. At the time of the estate sale after his death, he owned three Fords, plenty of hogs and cattle, and tools. The house was well stocked with food. Another theory was that perhaps he contracted malaria or some other disease that affects the brain. But nothing conclusive was found there either. Maybe he was just tired. Maybe his body was giving up on him and the headaches were telling him that it was about his time to go. Maybe he couldn't imagine leaving his family with that kind of a burden. Or maybe he couldn't stand the thought of being without them. I don't know. I'm still no closer to knowing. We will have to settle in to the fact that we may never know why Charlie Lawson killed his family, spared his one son, and then took his own life. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Bag of Bones Podcast. I'd be curious to know if you have any theories on the topic. Feel free to share on our page at Bag of Bones Podcast on Instagram or Facebook or even reach out to me by email through my website at elizabethbougeret.com. I sincerely hope you and yours have a most wonderful Christmas. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Happy Holidays. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.